Well, our scripture this morning is 1 Samuel chapter 17. Just going to read a portion of a story that uh, if you've been in church circles at all, you've heard a hundred times or more. It's found in 1 Samuel chapter 17. It's the story of David and Goliath. David and Goliath. Just uh, a few verses here, verses 1 to 11 from the New Living Translation, 1 Samuel 17. We read this. The Philistines now mustered their army for battle and camped between Socko in Judah and Azekah at one of those hard places to pronounce. Saul countered by gathering his Israelite troops near the valley of Elah. So the Philistines and Israelites faced each other on opposite hills with the valley between them. Then Goliath, a Philistine champion of Gath, came out of the Philistines' ranks to face the forces of Israel. He was over nine feet tall. He wore a bronze helmet, and his bronze coat of mail weighed 125 pounds. He also wore bronze leg armor, and he carried a bronze javelin on his shoulder. The shaft of his spear was as heavy and thick as a weaver's beam, tipped with an iron spearhead that weighed 15 pounds. His armor bearer walked ahead of him carrying a shield. Goliath stood and shouted a taunt across the Israelites, Why are you all coming out to fight? Yes, he called. I am the Philistine champion, but you are only the servants of Saul. Choose one man to come down here and fight me. If he kills me, then we will be your slaves. But if I kill him, you will be our slaves. I defy the armies of Israel today. Send me a man who will fight me. When Saul and the Israelites heard this, they were terrified and deeply shaken. Now, we lost our Sunday last week with the snowstorm, or whatever you want to call it, and so we're kind of officially kicking off our new year this year, but I'm sure even though we're only on January 15th, I won't ask you to raise your hands, but there's bound to be at least a few people here who already have failed their resolutions, you know, who've made the terminations, you know, and, and just kind of gone by the wayside already. You know, one of the things I love about God is just that His steadfast love is constant. It is constant. Despite all the strongholds that we may feel we struggle with, things that we have going on in our life, I want you to know this morning, friends, God is on our side. Just think of this. How oftentimes do we come to church, we worship the Lord, we sense His presence, but we're also aware that within our hearts there is still sin that's not been removed. Or maybe there's still pain that we've not really dealt with and it's not been healed, it's not been resolved. We come before the Lord Sunday after Sunday with these incredible, awesome opportunities that He has before us. And in the midst of all of that, we come before God who loves us, and He's just waiting for us to respond to Him. That's all. He's waiting for us to respond because His love for us is constant. Now, just by way of history a little bit, in ancient times, the times read right in the Scripture this morning, in the days of ancient Israel, there were a people called the Philistines. The Philistines actually originally from the island of Crete. They were a seafaring people who landed on the shores of what we know today as modern-day Israel, and they began to push their way inland toward the east because as all armies and all civilizations did at that time, they sought the higher ranges where to begin to set up forts and encampments up on the, in the hills and the ranges, uh, the ridges rather, up in the mountains. And they also wanted to begin to divide uh, this, the kingdom of King Saul, who was king Israel at, of Israel at that time. Now the Philistines, they were a battle-tested people. 
They were a very dangerous people as far as warriors and armies go, and they were the sworn enemies of Israel. So what we read in the story is as they land on Shur and begin to move inland, they come to the valley of Elah, and they set up all of their armies on the southern ridge. We have a picture here of the valley of Elah, and they set up their armies on one side of the ridge, and of course on the other side, when Saul hears that they're there, Saul musters all his armies from the city. He comes down toward the valley of Elah, and he pitches his tents on the northern ridge, and there they stay for what seems to be about a two-month period. One army on one side, one army on the other, looking across the valley at each other, neither one of them daring to move. Because if one army comes down the hill, goes across the valley, and goes up at the other army, then they obviously put themselves at a disadvantage. It's just suicidal. So they both stay where they are. Well, enough time goes by that finally the Philistines, they have enough. And so they send their greatest warrior into the valley to resolve this deadlock one-on-one. And the Bible says that Goliath, this man, this warrior of the Philistines, that he was six cubits and a span. A cubit is essentially 18 inches. Some say 17, 18. Uh, A span is simply the fingertip to the thumb tip. And so if you got a big hand, it's about nine inches. So according to the Scripture's definition, or description rather, uh, it looks like Goliath is about nine feet, nine inches tall. Would have made a killing playing basketball today, but... uh, Unfortunately, it didn't happen back then. Nine feet, nine inches. So for 40 days, every single day, twice a day, in the morning and at night, Goliath leaves the ranks of the Philistine army, comes down into the valley, and he shouts across to the Israelites these words. He says, choose a man for yourselves and let him come down to me. If he is able to fight with me and kill me, then we will be your servants. But if I prevail against him and kill him, then you shall be our servants and you shall serve us. And every time Saul hears this, every time the Israeli armies hear this, they are terrified. Nobody moves because nobody thinks they have a chance against this Philistine opponent. Now, Goliath's challenge was not uncommon in that day. It's what was called single combat. And single combat, as you're probably aware, was a practice in the ancient world where if two enemy forces came together, rather than bloodshed, rather than thousands upon thousands of lives potentially being lost, they would say, you choose your champion, we'll send out our champion, they will fight for us, and whoever wins, of course, then the other side uh, is defeated and whatever the ramifications of that may be. So essentially, he was challenging him to a duel. And that is exactly what Goliath was expecting. Goliath was expecting a warrior like himself to come down into the valley, to come up to him, and to fight him in hand-to-hand combat. It never occurred to Goliath that the fight would take on any other form. It never occurred to him that David would come and David would do what David did, if you know the story, but instead he expected that the fighter would come prepared just like him. And that's why Goliath was dressed the way he was. That's why he had a coat of metal, just kind of like fish scales, just a a coat of metal that weighed 125 pounds. That's why he had a shield and a a sword and a spear and and a thrusting javelin. He had all those things. Why? Because he was anticipating close combat. But then David appears, and what happens next, of course, is legend. David puts one of the stones in his pouch, He slings it at Goliath's uh, exposed forehead. Goliath falls to the ground. He's dazed. 
David runs up to Goliath. In case you didn't see the movie, I'm just telling you what happened. David runs up to Goliath. He takes Goliath's sword, and he cuts off Goliath's head. And verse 51 of that same passage says, When the Philistines saw their champion was dead, they fled. Okay. Essentially, the story of David and Goliath is about a miraculous victory by an underdog who by everybody's expectations should not even have been in the battle, let alone win it. And this is why we've heard the story of David and Goliath told time after time after time down through the generations. And it's how the phrase David and Goliath has become a metaphor in our own English language, our own Christian culture, a metaphor for impossible success. The problem with the story of David and Goliath is that almost everything that we've kind of perceived about it isn't exactly right. Aren't you glad you came this morning? All the years that we've heard this story about David and Goliath, we've heard it wrong. You're supposed to gasp. <gasps> okay. Well, it's not that dramatically wrong. But as I was studying this story and from different resources and so on, some interesting things came to light that kind of cast a different light on the story, but it is still glorious and still has a wonderful message that I believe we can carry with us into this new year. One thing I learned is that in ancient armies, there were essentially three kind of warriors. In every army, most had cavalry, which of course were men on horses or on chariots. You would have had the infantry or foot soldiers, men who had a spear or sword and their, and their shield and marched in the battle. But they also had what was called projectile warriors. Some would call them artillery, and they would be using bows and arrows, or they would be using slings in some of the cultures, or what were called slingers. Slingers, as I'm sure you're aware, they had a leather pouch with long leather cords, and they would put a stone or a piece of metal or something into the pouch, and they would begin to turn the sling round and round and round and continue to pick up speed until finally they released the object with a great velocity toward the target. Now, one thing we know from history is that slinging took an incredible amount of expertise and practice and experience. In fact, in experienced hands, it was a devastating weapon. In Judges chapter 20, we have an interesting scripture that describes the tribe of Benjamin as having some 700 slingers in their army. And it says this, or among their people, and it says this, every one of them could sling a stone at a strand of hair and never miss. Imagine that, at a strand of hair and never miss. And I'm sure that's more than just a metaphor. David was from the tribe of Benjamin. David was an expert slinger. David was a man who could injure or kill a target from as far away as 200 yards, we're told by historians. In fact, the Roman army had a special set of tongs that they designed exclusively for the purpose of getting the stones out of their soldiers' bodies in warfare. That's how lethal, how dangerous they were. There's an historian by the name of Baruch Halpern. He suggests that the three categories of warriors in the ancient armies, your cavalry, your foot soldiers, and your slingers, that they were kind of like modern-day rock, paper, scissors. What that means is that every one of the, each one had an advantage over one of the other styles of warfare, 
but they were also at a disadvantage to another style of warfare. For example, they say that with their long spears and their army, oftentimes infantry could stand up against cavalry. Cavalry, in turn, has an advantage over the artillery or the projectile warriors because the speed at which they are moving sometimes makes them hard to hit. But when it came to the slingers themselves, they had a great advantage over infantrymen, over foot soldiers, because foot soldiers oftentimes were encumbered with a lot of armor, a lot of weight. They were slow moving, slow maneuvering oftentimes, and yet the slingers could launch their projectiles from as far away as 100 yards, may not even see them, and they're getting hit as they're walking into battle. So the point is this, Goliath is an infantryman. He's a heavy infantryman. And Goliath thinks in this story he's going to be engaged in a duel with another infantryman. In fact, when Goliath says in verse 44, he says to David, come to me, what does he mean? He means come up close to me so we can fight. Does that make sense? We can fight in close quarters. We can fight hand to hand. In fact, when Saul uh, gives David or offers David his armor, why does he do that? Because Saul is under the assumption that David is going to go and fight Goliath hand to hand. So he gives him his armor. He gives him much of the same protection that Goliath would have had for this hand to hand combat. But David has no intention of doing that. And what David does, if you read the story, is David tells Saul, Saul, I can't use this armor. Please understand this. I wasn't planning to say this, but just as an interesting fact, a lot of pictures you will see show David as this little shepherd boy, right? Goliath's like a mountain, and David's is a little shepherd boy with, you know, a bed sheet on kind of thing and a leather belt, and, and off he goes. David, in all likelihood, was probably six feet tall himself. David was a mighty warrior. In fact, we read later in Scripture that David actually used Goliath's sword in battle. So David had to be a strong man, okay? He was a, a strong, he was a mighty warrior. He was a warrior king. He wasn't someone you wanted to mess with. In, in fact, Saul would not even have loaned David his armor if it wasn't going to fit him. I mean, Saul understood battle. He's not giving David all this big armor that's kind of hanging off him like this. No, he assumes it would fit him, and it probably did fit him when he tried it on. And we know that Saul was a tall man. Anyway, that's just a little fun fact, so you can kind of get out of your mind this image of this little teenage boy, this little scrawny little guy. He was, he was a, a good-looking man, the Bible says, well-built. He was a strong man, but his confidence was not just in that. But the point being, David had no intention of using Saul's armor. In fact, when David tells King Saul, listen, I can't use your armor because I've not used it before. There's no point in going fresh into a battle with weapons I'm not really that used to, comfortable with. And he tells Saul, he says, listen, King, don't worry. He says, as a shepherd out in the back wilderness, he said, I've, I've killed with my own hands bears. I've killed lions. You know, you know, you can kind of read through that story kind of quick. Oh, that's cool. No, no, he killed a lion. Think about that. You know, sometimes on YouTube, I kind of go on, you know, lion kills, lion hunts. I don't know why. It's kind of a fascination I have. I mean, these are lions. David kills, okay? He kills lions. He kills bears. So he's not saying that to break. What he's saying to the king is, listen, I'm going to go against Goliath with the same weapons I've used against the bear and the lion. I'm going to use the same weapon because I know this weapon. I know how to use it. I'm, conf I'm confident in using it. I'm going to go against Goliath as a projectile warrior, as a slinger. 
And David runs toward Goliath because without the armor, of course, he has a lot of speed and maneuverability. He puts a rock in the sling. He whips it around and around until it reaches a deadly velocity. There's a man by the name of Aten Hirsch. He's a ballistic expert with the Israeli Defense Forces. He calculates this. He says, at a distance of 100 feet, the stone would have hit Goliath in less than a second with the stopping power of a 44 Magnum bullet. Imagine that. So the question is this. What could Goliath do? Think of it. Goliath is wearing a couple hundred pounds of armor altogether. Even though he's a big man, okay, he's slow. He's standing there. He's mocking David. He calls on David. And when David approaches, Goliath's response first is with scorn. But I believe that as Goliath begins to see who David is and what David is carrying, then his scorn changes to surprise. And as David begins to whip around his sling, that surprise must have become sheer horror when he realizes that the battle plan suddenly and unexpectedly had changed. David says this, You come to me with sword and spear and with a javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel whom you have defied. This day the Lord will deliver you into my hand, and I will strike you down, and I will cut off your head. And I believe that as David reaches into his pouch for that stone, nobody in either of those armies who are observing this battle would have been surprised by the outcome, by the victory of David. Why? Because according to ancient battle strategies, slingers beat infantry hands down every single time. What I want us to see this morning is David fought Goliath not with inferior weaponry. He fought with superior weaponry. Because if you've ever played the game, you know that paper beats rock every time, right? That's how the battles work. Now, I know you're probably wondering at this point, Paul, this almost sounds sacrilegious. This is not how I've heard the story growing up. It's not how I've heard it growing up either, nor the way I've usually told it. But if what I'm saying is true, you might say, well, then where's the miracle? Where's God in all this? It kind of sounds like David did it on his own, or that David, you know, you're giving David all the credit. My answer to you would be this, yes and no. You see, when I read this story, one thing that I notice is that nowhere in this story does the writer say that God directed the stone from David's sling to Goliath's forehead? You notice that? doesn't say that. Now, I'm not saying he didn't, but to say that he did is an inference. It's not clearly stated in the Scripture. What we do know and what David does state is that the battle is the Lord's. That he comes at Goliath with confidence in the Lord. That's what the Bible states very clearly. It's important to underline that David is basically saying, God is with me, I will not lose. God is with me, and because he is with me, because I know him, I am responding to this threat in confidence in my God. Now, I'm just kind of laying a foundation this morning. We're going to unpack this more in the weeks ahead. But our theme for 2017 is simply this. If you haven't seen it on Facebook or online, it is simply this. Live on purpose. Year of intent. You say that with me? Live on purpose. 
Year of Intent, 2017. We talked about this a little bit before Christmas. We talked about the theme of margins. And intentional living ties into this. What I want us to understand is this. Intentional living is what creates space in your life for the life God means for you to live. Let me say that again. Intentional living is what creates space in your life, creates room in your life in order for you and me to begin to live the life that God means for us to live in this coming year. To live on purpose, to live with intent, means this. It means to live less out of habit and more out of intent. Don't raise your hands, but how many of us would be honest enough to say, you know what, if I really look at my life, I kind of live it out of habit. I just do the things that seem like the natural things to do. I give myself to the things that it seems like everybody else has given themselves to do, whether it's projects or pastimes or hobbies or leisure or recreation, whatever it may be. I mean, I love the Lord. I, you know, I, I want to please God, but basically my life is a life of routines. Can I suggest, as I jot it down on this next slide for this year, can I suggest this? It is better to be at the bottom of the ladder that God wants you to climb than to be at the top of the ladder you're climbing on your own. It's better to be at the bottom. You've got to start somewhere. And sometimes we are so discouraged and hesitant to really start something new because we feel like, oh, it just seems like a journey of a thousand miles, or I just seem to be so far away from that. But yet in my heart, I feel a stirring. I feel this is something God is calling me to. I heard a pastor the other day, um, Joel, I can't remember his name, Church. He had a little clip there in the Bible reading plan, a little devotion. And he talked about the fact, he said, listen, one of the things you can do as a believer, if you want to bring life change over a period of time, is don't start all this new stuff. And this may not seem radical, he says, but what if you did this? What if you just incorporated one new discipline in your life each year? Imagine, just one discipline, really get hold of that this year, next year add something else. Ten years from now, imagine the disciplines and the fruitfulness you begin to experience in your life because you're taking it one at a time. Well, this year, I want to encourage us to examine our hearts and say, Lord, where am I? As I move into 2017, am I just off lickety-split on all these new plans, all these new goals, all these new ambitions, everybody says I need to be doing whatever it is, or have I stopped and said, Lord, I just want to find myself at the bottom rung of your ladder? If I'm there, I'm happy. I'm going to start my journey but I want to be about what you're doing. Friends, my desire this year is not just to live a disciplined life. It's to live a directed life. And there's a big difference. You can be very focused on your goals in 2017, and yet you can still miss everything God has for you. You can miss everything God intends for your family and those around you. We need to live God-directed lives. That's my prayer for 2017. Anybody up for that? One, two, okay, good, Let's, we'll support each other. Living a God-directed life, that will include discipline, but here is the real discipline in it. The discipline is to choose to only give yourself to those things that will foster the life God wants you to live. That's where the discipline comes in. You can't accomplish anything in the kingdom without discipline, but you can be a very disciplined person and miss everything God has for you. Or you can incorporate discipline in what God is speaking to you about that he wants you to give priority to and actually begin to live the life that he wants you to live. And you do that day by day, decision by decision. You do that by the words you speak. You do that by the commitments that you make. 
You do that by the pastimes that you choose and the pleasures that you choose, the things that you choose to take on through the year. I remember years ago when I was young in ministry, I approached this lady, just a, a wonderful godly woman, a prayer warrior in the church, and I asked her if she would help with a, uh, this what I thought was kind of a little incidental kind of thing. Maybe, in, you know, you're committed for a week or two being at a, at a certain ministry we're doing, and it just kind of seemed like common sense, or, you know, something any Christian would want to do. And so I said, would, would, would you mind helping me with this for a couple of weeks? And her only response was, Pastor, I will ask the Lord, and I'll get back to you. And I thought she was flaky. No, I'm only kidding. I didn't, but it, it caught me off guard, but it was also kind of rebuked to my spirit. And I thought, you are right. It seems like a little thing. But if God does not want you to do that, don't give yourself to it. It, it. Not that it may not be a good thing to do, but it's not what God has for you. And if it's not what God has for you, friends, as good as it may be, and it may be God-ordained for someone else to do, it is a distraction for you for what God is calling you to. Either in your relationship with Him, in your ministry, whatever He's calling you to, whatever season of life you are in. So don't be just disciplined. Don't think all great of yourself because, okay, I laid out 10 things I want to accomplish this year. Wonderful if God's in it. If He's not, you're distracted and you're robbed of God's highest purposes. So much of our gospel today, and I mean this in all kindness, and we can be all guilty, but friends, when I listen to so much of what passes for the gospel, for preaching, for programming, so much in the church of North America today is little more than just self-improvement. That's all it is. Just self-improvement. It's just about being a better person and, and being better in this area and that area and, and, and just having lots of you know, blessing kind of thing under God. It's not about the purpose of God happening in and through your life. There's a difference. God will improve you. He won't just improve you. He'll transform you. He will change you. He will set you free. He will make you a new person. He will give you objectives and goals. He will flow through you. That's, that's his promise. But he doesn't want you to settle. Settle for self-improvement. No, he wants his life flowing through. That's what Paul said. He said, listen, people, the kingdom of God, we're going to talk more about this in the days ahead. The kingdom of God is not words. The kingdom of God's not theory, it's not platitudes, it's not cliches, it's not nice thoughts. The kingdom of God is power. It's the presence and power of God flowing through the lives of the disciples of Jesus Christ. That's the evidence that the kingdom of God is in your midst. You see, David's greatness was not in his natural gifts and expertise. He said as much before he fought Goliath. God used David's gifts to win a great victory that day. But his greatness, David's greatness, was never in his abilities. David's greatness, I'm convinced, was in his attitude. David knew his God. David had a love for the Word of God. David lived and moved and functioned out of a perspective of truth. He knew who he was as the anointed of God, just as we are, as Jesus says, the anointed of God. Now, here's the difference. If you read the story, you'll discover David lands on the battlefield because he's basically bringing some food to his older brothers who are in Saul's army. His father Jesse says, David, go and take some food to your brothers, and, and I've got this real nice fancy cheese I want you to take to the commander of his unit. You go and do that, then come back home. David gets there, and the whole side of the hill is full of the armies of Israel. All these, and these are battle-tested warriors too, these armies of Israel. I mean, you had foot soldiers in there, you had slingers in there, you had experts in battle who were there, but they were all pinned to the side of the hill. And every time Goliath spoke, they were terrified and nobody moved. 
You see, David is no more experienced than they are. David is no more skilled than any other slingers who are on the side of the hill. What was different was David's heart. What was different was David was a man in the Word of God. David was a man who loved God's Word. God's Word was in his heart. It dictated the way he thought, how he saw things. It dictated his actions. And so David comes and brings the food. And as he's bringing the food to his brothers, he hears this giant in the valley spouting off. And basically, David doesn't even get to the commander with the cheese. If you read the story, he just leaves it with the guy who takes care of the supplies. Hey, just give this to the commander. Give this to my brothers. i got to see what's happened. I can't believe my ears. And David walks down, and he hears what Goliath is saying, and David's heart, his, his heart is, is, is just moved, and his response is immediate. Get this. Here's all his brothers. Here's all these great warriors, Israel warriors. Here is King Saul himself, who should have been the natural one to step down into the battlefield, probably six foot four himself, ahead above everybody else, the tallest in Israel, the natural selection to take on Goliath. He's scared to death. And here's what David says. Who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? What was David saying? Listen, guys, you're the people of God. You have a covenant with God. God is in your midst. This guy down here may be nine and a half feet tall, but he doesn't know God. He's Godless. You know what that means? God is not with him. He's Godless. There's no God in his life. God is in your life. God is in your midst. What in the world are you doing sitting there? And friends, as we unpack this, uh, this more in the days ahead, if we're going to live life on purpose in 2017, if we're going to live a God-directed life and begin to lay hold of what God intends for us, something has to begin to rise up within us. It's not just resolutions. It's not just sincerity. It's not just trying harder. Something within our spirit has to begin to rise up and look around at our lives, look where we have been pinned down, look where we have been intimidated, look where we have bought the lie, look where anything less than God's purposes for us are on the go, and we've got to rise up and say, hey, wait a minute, it's not going down this way. It's not going to be the same this year. I'm not putting up with that anymore. Something's going to begin to change. I serve the living God, and he has other plans for me. Now, I'm just being general this morning. We'll get more specific in the days ahead. But friends, that's where it begins. The door has to open. A crack has to open where we begin to allow the truth of God's word to penetrate our heart, the spirit of God to penetrate our life, and begin to care to actually give a rip about the will of God for our lives not just continue in routines, not just fill our days with things that seem good enough and yet then stand before God one day as a pauper, having accomplished nothing for him, never being used by him, never expanding the kingdom of God on his behalf. Here we are, the people of God, indwelt by the Spirit of God himself within us. And we have the risk of standing before God one day as a pauper with all the potential and truth that he's given to us in this life. As we see in David, it all begins with knowing our God. But it also includes knowing our enemy. I have to wrap up here. The reason King Saul is skeptical of David's chances 
is that David is small by comparison to Goliath. Again, Saul's exact height, it's not mentioned in the Bible, we're told he was head taller than anybody else, so Saul would have been the obvious challenger for Goliath. But you see, the problem with Saul is he's thinking of power in the terms of physical strength, and he wasn't alone in that area, in that mistake. But the deeper issue is this. Saul and the Israelites, they actually think they know Goliath. They actually think they know what he's made up of, and they look at his size, and they jump to conclusions about what they think he's capable of. But here's the key. They don't really see him. They don't really see him. They see this nine-foot-nine giant out there with all the armor, but they don't really see him. One of the uh, hypotheses that I came across that I found fascinating, whether it's true or not, I think there's some, it does have some weight in it, and simply is this. Goliath's behavior is actually quite puzzling because he's supposed to be this great warrior, and no doubt he was a warrior and struck fear with those who came on him one-to-one -one in close proximity, but there's some things in his behavior that are kind of puzzling. For example, think of this. One suggestion was Goliath has a shield bearer. Why does Goliath have a shield bearer? Why does Goliath have an attendant? Why does he have somebody lead him down to the valley floor? You see, it was only kings or archers that normally had an ancient, in ancient uh, militaries who had a shield bearer. Archers, obviously, because they have a bow and an arrow, they need someone to protect them. Kings, because by virtue of their office. But Goliath has this attendant who actually walks down into the valley with him. Why does he have that? He only has a shield, or rather, he only has one weapon in his hand, and then he can carry his shield. doesn't seem to make a lot of sense. Second, why does Goliath say to David, come to me? And why is Goliath so slow-moving compared to David if he as well is a seasoned warrior? And third, there's this strange comment after he finally spots David with his shepherd's staff. And he says this, Am I a dog that you come to me with sticks? Plural, sticks. David has one stick. He has a shepherd's staff. Now here's where it gets kind of interesting. Medical experts have theorized that Goliath actually looks and sounds a lot like someone suffering from a medical condition that is called acromegaly. Acromegaly is a disease caused by a tumor on the pituitary gland. And what that tumor does is it creates this overproduction of a growth hormone, which would very naturally explain Goliath's unusual size, his gargantuan size. Now, you might think, well, Goliath's just folklore. No. Actually, if you know Guinness Book of World Records, you'll know a man by the name of Robert Wadlow. Robert Wadlow suffered from acromegaly. Just a little boy. 21 years of age. Lived in the United States. He died at the age of 21, 22. He was 8 feet 11 inches tall, and he was still growing. He just died from the disease. It was too much on his body, obviously. One of the most common side effects of acromegaly is double vision because the pituitary tumor is pressing on the optic nerve. And so with that in mind, I come back to the question. Why did an attendant lead Goliath into the valley floor? Some historians suggest the attendant was actually Goliath's guide. He led him there to show him where to go, where to stand. Why does he tell David, come to me? And then why does he take so long to adjust to David's battle plan? It suggested that at a distance, everything to Goliath was just a blur. Didn't have good vision. 
And then, of course, with that strange statement about the sticks. David only has one stick. Goliath sees multiple sticks. Whether or not that is true, I have no problem believing that, but whether or not that is true, the point is this. What the Israelites saw from high up on that ridge was an intimidating giant. But in reality, the very thing that gave Goliath this intimidating appearance was also his greatest weakness. As I said, I'm not going to unpack it this morning. Let me give you a Bible verse as we come toward the conclusion. John chapter 8. From the very beginning, Jesus said, the devil was a murderer and has never been on the side of truth because there is no truth in him. When he tells a lie, he is only doing what is natural to him because he is a liar and he is the father of all lies. Friends, what I want to tell you is this. As you begin to move into a new year, a new year that I believe God intends for us to be a year of purpose, a year of intent, that God intends for us to lay a hold of some things in our lives individually, corporately as a church, to move in the new dimensions of ministry, new dimensions of fruitfulness, one of the things we've got to understand is the devil will always set before you and me giants. Your giant can be something from your past. Your giant can be something from your present. It could be some fear you may have projected out there, but I promise you that every strategy the devil brings against you, it is based on deception. It is based upon a lie. That is his greatest weapon. He wants to appear to you through many different means as being this imposing, intimidated enemy or stronghold that you have no power to overcome. But I'm so thankful that my God, his love is steadfast. It doesn't change. It is for freedom that Christ has set us free. And he wants us to be living as people who are free. We're going to talk more about that. But Jesus said this, you will know what? You will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. David comes running toward Goliath, powered by the knowledge of truth. And the closer he gets, I would suggest to you, the more terrified Goliath gets. And David defeats him and destroys him and actually changes the destiny of his people for the next hundred years. I'm going to ask you musicians to join me if you would. How many Star Wars fans we have here? How many are willing to admit it? Star Wars? Sure. It came out when I was like 16 years old. It was like episode 29 or something now. Actually, it's number eight. Anybody see Rogue One? Come on, you can admit it. Yeah, you saw Rogue One. Star Wars, essentially, at least the, the, the Rogue One episode, it has to do with a fight against this evil empire, the galactic empire. They are ruling the galaxy. And there's great fear throughout the galaxy because they're in the midst of creating this super weapon that is called the Death Star. It's like this 100-kilometer-round spherical you know, weapon that shoots a super laser and destroys planets. Entire planets obliterates them. And so you have these good guys, what are called the rebel forces. And so they're trying to get recruits from around the galaxy because they want to get into the Death Star and find a way to destroy it. Well, they find this one lady, her name is Jin Urso. And Jin is kind of this strong, cocky, independent, you know, survivor. And, and uh, so they end up kidnapping her, trying to get her to join their cause. Now, long story short, what I found interesting in watching this movie, this one, this one lie caught my line caught my attention, and I had to jot it down. 
Because the rebel forces, the leaders, have her standing there and they're saying, you've got to join our cause, you've got to join our cause, we've got to destroy this enemy once and for all and the, the havoc that, that's reigning over the galaxy. And basically, she has been so used to living under that empirical power, she doesn't think anything is going to change. And so one of the commanders of the rebel forces says this. He basically asks her how long she can live in a world where imperial flags oppressively dominate the landscape. How long can you live like that? And she, she, she says this classic line that I jotted down. She said to the commander, she said, it's not a problem if you don't look up. Hello? It's not a problem if you don't look up. And my prayer as we move into the new year is that as the Lord shows us, and we know many of them already, we just see areas where the enemy has staked a claim. It can be in your marriage, it can be in your home, it can be in your neighborhood, in your workplace, in your body, in your attitude, in habits, in strongholds, wherever it may be. He just puts up a flag, puts up a flag. This is my territory, this is my territory. Your kids are my kids, your finances are my finances, your life is my life. You're not going any farther. You may get to heaven, but you're going to live in hell here. And he drives a stake into your life, drives a flag into your life. And you get used to that, don't you? Don't we do that? We get used to that. Sunday after Sunday, same sins, not removed. The same strongholds, the same pain, unresolved. Same opportunities God puts before us that we never lay hold of. You know why? Because our attitude is, it's not a problem if I don't look up. But I'll tell you this, when you begin to look up, when you begin to look up, you realize it doesn't have to be this way. It's not what God intends. You're a purpose. What is the life that God means for you to live? What are the gifts of the Spirit in which God intends for you to minister? What is the situation in which God wants you to live? What fruitful ministry does God have for you wherever the, feet of your, the, the sole of your feet tread? Where is it that God wants to expand His kingdom in and around your life? What does He have for you? What's the next level He wants to bring you to? Will you stand up with me?